If you'd like to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, that's where we'll be here in just a moment, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, on the screens beside me, you see a picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the old city of Jerusalem. Sepulchre just means tomb. Uh, and this church building was built over the site that has the oldest claim to being the place where the Rock of Calvary was and where the burial place of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. Uh, very close together. It's a big building, and on each end we have these two things. If you went in this door right here and went to the right, you have where the Rock of Calvary was supposed to be, and if you went to the left, you would have where the burial place of Christ is supposed to be. And uh, my dad and I had the chance to visit this place in 2015 when we uh, had a trip to Israel. And as the place that has the oldest claim uh, made by Helena, who was the mother of the first Roman emperor sympathetic to Christianity, Constantine, it also has um, the claim that it is likely the actual place where the Son of God died was buried and arose the, the third day. At least it is the most likely place for those things to have happened. It's based on traditions that were widely known in the second, third, and fourth centuries. The problem with this site, uh, although it is likely to be authentic, or at least most likely to be authentic, it's covered by a building that has been built, destroyed, rebuilt, and remodeled several times since the 300s when it was originally built. And the traditions that cover this site cover it more completely than the building ever could. In order to approach the place where Jesus was supposedly buried, one has to approach this gaudy enclosure and bow over a small peephole to see a small part of what was supposed to be the entrance to the tomb, or, or so we are told. Uh, I uh, had to stand in this very long line. In fact, it wrapped all the way around and back in there when I was there. And I stood in it for about 45 minutes and it felt oddly like Disney World. Like we're standing in line. We're like, okay, how long is this ride actually going to be when we get to the front? And, and finally, we came out uh, into this part, this uh, rounded uh, part of the, the building and you could see the front of this structure, and then down underneath is where the tomb was supposed to be. And you see how, how gaudy it is, uh, gold and candles, and there were chanting mobs, and there were people who were, who were kind of reverent, and a lot of people who were not very reverent. Um, and, and finally, I just got out of line. I just couldn't do it. I was just kind of repulsed by it all. It just it felt so idolatrous, uh, maybe is the right word. The place where Jesus was supposedly crucified wasn't a whole lot better. Uh, this is a picture of that. And you can see uh, that the rock is actually literally enshrined in gold. This is all gold right here with glass over it. I promise you this was not what it looked like the day I was there. The day I was there, this is a picture that I took. You could hardly get up there because of all the people, and there were people praying very loudly everywhere, and, and you got people with all sorts of motives and all sorts of hearts, and I can't read those things, uh, but it was really quite the experience to be there. This church building is owned by six different religious groups, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Apostolic, the Roman Catholic, the Coptic, or sometimes called Egyptian Christians, Ethiopian, and Syriac Orthodox churches. 
And the whole building has been carefully divided up into sections with just a few common areas where everybody can go. And the rest, these sections that each group owns are fiercely guarded from the other groups. And there are a series of complicated rules that somebody has to follow for one group to pass through the common areas in order to get to their part of the building. And these rules are exhaustive. They're down to who lights which candle on the same table who sweeps which part of the floors. And there are some portions of the church where the ownership is hotly disputed between these groups. It is not uncommon, believe it or not, for fist fights to break out over territory and boundaries. In 2008, one such brawl broke out over an Armenian procession commemorating the 4th century discovery of some wood Uh, that they say was part of Jesus' cross. And the Greeks objected to the march without one of their monks being present because they thought it would weaken their claim of ownership to the shrine built over the traditional tomb site. And so the Greeks blocked the processional. The Armenians tried to push through and blows were exchanged over the course of uh, their confrontation. Um, I think the look on this guy's face is always a little funny. It almost looks like he's smiling. And and I wonder if uh, for those who have to come in and enforce, which is usually Israelis, Jews, I I wonder if they just look at this as all kind of silly, fighting uh, over these relics. Blows were exchanged to the point that a lot of people left bruised and bloodied. One area of the church where ownership is poorly defined is uh, on the roof. And there is an outside edifice, a small section of the roof, that is disputed between the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. It's a section where no tourists are allowed. Um, And if you look, uh, it's kind of down here in this right-hand corner. I'll zoom in on that. There's a little replica uh, of an Ethiopian village up there. And the compound is called the Monastery of Sultan. It is the last toehold of a sad history for the Ethiopians uh, with this building. They once had their own space down in the main building below, but a plague killed all of their monks in 1658. And instead of mourning over the loss of these people, the other groups just kind of divided up the section that they used to have. And the Ethiopians and Egyptians have vied for control of this rooftop area, with the Ethiopians changing all of the locks and giving nobody else keys in 1970 to take control. But the Egyptians don't like that. And it's been reported that they send one of their monks up there every day with a folding chair to a particular spot to assert their counterclaim to the roof. And in 2002, it was an especially hot summer that year, Uh, This monk that went up there that particular day, he saw a little bit of shade if he just moved his chair a little bit. And so he moved his chair, what is reported, he moved his chair eight inches to kind of get closer to this shade. And they viewed that, the, uh, the other group viewed that as a hostile act of aggression. Eleven people were hospitalized after the brawl that broke out. On another part of the building's exterior, you see right out here on the outside, there is a ladder. If you see right up here under this window, and there's a little uh, barrier there to keep people from falling off if they go up there. We find this infamous ladder propped up against a window. 
That ladder has been there at least since the early 1800s, probably earlier. The first mention of trouble with the ladder was uh, from an edict in 1757. But the ladder that presently rests on the window ledge we know was there for over two centuries. And it was put there by an unknown person belonging to an unknown sect for an unknown reason. And no one has touched it since. It's known as the immovable ladder. And no one knows who owns it. No one can move it. And no one knows why it's there. Only that someone else probably offended them by putting it there. And so there it sits as a symbol of the so-called Christians above and below who can't get along with one another. Who can't get along with one another a mere stone's throw literally from where Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. And maybe you hear all of this and you say, whoa, wait a second, preacher. I I saw the advertisement. This is supposed to be better together. And it doesn't seem like these folks are very much better together under the same roof in the same building. But don't we know it to be true that just because you worship under the same roof, it doesn't mean that you're together. And we are only better as Christians if we truly are united and together. And this ladder, this ladder at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre serves as a standing shrine to each of us about the sins of selfish ambition, dissensions, and divisions. The silliness of these conflicts And it should allow us to objectively look at ourselves. That's not us, is it? Surely not. It is a colorful and extreme case of the works of the flesh employed by Satan to destroy churches over the course of all times. And those three words are taken from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. Let's read the whole context again. Uh, The brother did a great job reading that, but let's read this together. And notice how much of this deals with our interpersonal relationships with one another as Christians. Let's go back to verse 13, if you would. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Uh, Glad you're here this morning. Um, And we hope the things that we talk about this morning can uh, not just be helpful to us, but uplifting to us as we strive to grow closer together. For you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, notice, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and it continues, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're going to focus on those last three words uh, in the works of the flesh in verse 20. Selfish ambition, New King James NIV says, rivalries, the ESV says, dissensions, uh, as it's found in almost all the translations, and then that third word, factions in the New American Standard, heresies, as I just read in the New King James. I like the word divisions in the ESV. We consider these three words. Selfish ambition uh, is the first word. I think that gives the most relatable sense of this sin. This word developed negative connotations, but early, in earlier times it would have simply meant to labor for wages. It came to refer to someone who was just working for hire and their heart wasn't really in it. They, they weren't really concerned about the quality of their production. And from there, it describes someone who was only interested in what, what they were getting out of the work that they were doing. And finally, it came to a point where it described specifically those who worked in, what do you think? Politics in Greek. Well, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Selfish ambition. They're only there for themselves. And so it came to mean office seeking or canvassing for office. We would say politicking. And so it arrives in our New Testament, used by Paul, to, to describe someone who manipulates things for their own gain, for their own self-promotion and self-service. In a more passive way, it might describe people in a church who are only there for what they can get out of it. You know, we've all been tempted to, to go home and say, you know what? I just didn't get much out of the service this morning. You know, that just didn't really speak to me. I, I just didn't feel it this morning. But we're supposed to come to church for others, not for ourselves. And it might describe the kind of person who is easily offended by what other people do, but they also easily offend. They're a stumbling block to others. And they might have a self-centered attitude in doing any of the works that they do for God. It's not about God. It's not about others. It's about them deep down in their heart. And those selfish ambitions lead to dissensions. Herodias used this word to describe a commanding general who switches sides in the middle of a military campaign, a, a Benedict Arnold, we might say. But this is not a switch that happens where everybody knows about it. It's not that he's left one army for the other, but that he's working from within to sabotage the force that he's supposed to be fighting for. Here is where the selfishly ambitious begin to form groups around themselves. They, they craft alliances with other people. They, they feel out weaknesses with their opponents. And this too carries with it political overtones. Once the force has been divided, those dissensions harden into factions or divisions. And this is another word that originally was harmless. It just meant to choose. And eventually it came to be applied to people who made a choice to stand by a certain position or preference. And so it referred to schools of thought. It was morally neutral. It just meant that you hold a position. But used in a negative sense, it means 
holding a position apart from others. Now, later on, it came to mean heresy, the idea of false doctrine. But as it's used here by the Apostle Paul, it's the idea of of splitting up over our opinions. As one man put it, the rallying of a group of people around one particular belief, holding an opinion as if that opinion or tradition was gospel truth. Nobody's ever done that, right? Never heard of that. And so people become unified in their thinking on an issue that is maybe not a matter of doctrine. And these three words describe a chain reaction. Selfish ambition in an individual leads to dissensions, which leads to factions or divisions among a group. And these sins can manifest themselves over matters of truth and error, of course, no doubt. Some of the selfishly ambitious people in the churches of Galatia to whom Paul was writing, they were creating dissension and factions over the false teaching in regard to Judaism and Judaizing teachers. But more often than not, these three words apply to divisions over the infamous personality differences. You've heard of that, hadn't you? You go up to somebody and you hear about division and you say, well, what happened between these two now separate groups or individuals? Was there some big doctrinal issue? You know, somebody was in sin and that's why they divided? That's why they disagreed? And the reply comes back. Uh, maybe you've heard it like I have. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was just, it was just personality differences. Or the ultimate example, uh, maybe used by everyone, A church uh, splitting over deciding the color of the carpet. You've heard that. Uh, I used to serve on the school board uh, in our local school district. And I remember we had a training one time and uh, this guy came in and, and he was talking about how division can take place in a school district or even on a board or in an administrative team. And And he was a religious guy. He was a believer, a member of, I don't remember what church, but uh, some some denomination. And so he kept using examples from the church that he was a part of. He was one of the leading men in in that church. And and so he had used that as an example. You know, people get all mad about what color we're painting the walls or what color the carpet is. And he used like three or four different examples where they had had division in his church over these matters that really don't matter. So I finally just raised my hand. He knew I was preaching. I raised my hand. He said, yes. I said, you know, maybe it's time to start looking for a different church. Like, like if you're dividing all of, all of, over all of those things, is that really what God wants? And it was said in a joking way. Uh, but as uh, Harold Hancock, who I work with, says, much truth has been spoken in jest. And when people joke about dividing over the color of the carpet, this is what they're talking about. But that cannot... That cannot describe the people of God. It should not describe the people of God. In the end, selfish ambition, dissension, and divisions are sins that take on a life of their own beyond the original fight. You ever done that with your spouse? You're fighting and you're mad at one another and you finally reach, what were we fighting about? What were we so mad about? And yet sometimes among those who call themselves Christians, among the Lord's people, We have fights that go back sometimes for generations, and maybe we don't even remember what it is we're fighting about. It is strife that causes people to become prejudiced toward one another, convicted that they are being principled. It is dissension that makes a person think that their unreasonable stubbornness 
is unwavering resolution. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. Conflict and disagreement, even arguments, are part of being in a local church, especially in a church that is growing and it is it's changing with people who are regularly bringing in new Christians as they are saved and they're Christians from other places and different backgrounds and they bring baggage with them when they come and become part of our group. Of course, we're going to disagree on things. And not every disagreement is, is over something that's petty. But at the same time, we're bound to one another. Just like in a marriage, we're bound to our spouse and we're going to have arguments springing out of misunderstandings and hurt feelings and conflicting priorities. But just like in a marriage, we need to strive in the Lord's church to keep our contentions holy, to keep our fights healthy and clean, to fight fair with one another because we all have the goal of unity under the banner of Jesus Christ, according to the teachings of the New Testament. And conflict can serve a purpose. I'm not denying that. Conflict can serve a purpose. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, notice verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, that's a terrible thing, isn't it? You come together as Christians, but it's worse that you're coming together than if you just stayed home and not come together at all. For first of all, verse 18, when you come together as a church, so we're talking about group activity, we're talking about the collective church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Notice verse 19. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul says there's divisions among you and that's not a good thing. But it can serve a purpose. These factions, this division among you can, can show that there are some among you who are doing what's right. They can be recognized that they are approved by God. It can serve a purpose. But it reminds me of... Uh, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 7 where Jesus says, uh, For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. You know, it can serve a purpose. It's going to happen from time to time, but this is not the goal. This is not what God would have us to do. You agree? I tell the kids back home, I need to hear your head rattle. Do you agree with that? This is not what God wants from us. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be better together. Peace and unity is what God desires. So let's see if we can make some applications from the latter and what we've read in Galatians chapter 5. You know, you know some common elements to these three sins? These sins begin with thinking. They begin in the mind, in the heart. And specifically, they begin with thinking of self. Maybe not every person, but certainly every group in the church of the Holy Sepulchre is concerned with what is theirs. They can't give an inch. They're looking for any opportunity to take advantage of the weakness of their brothers, so-called, instead of upholding them in their weakness. What about us? Am I looking for an opportunity to be offended by my brother instead of doing everything in my power not to be a stumbling block to them? 
to do everything in my power to put the best construction on what it is they do and what they say. Am I concerned about myself or am I concerned about others and my relationship with them? This sort of thinking breeds hypocrisy. If we're all about ourselves and our own selfish ambitions and my group and making sure everybody's on my side, we're not going to be the Christians we were called to be. When we were there, um, I'm glad you have chairs up there. It makes this illustration easier. Uh, When we were there, my dad and I, uh, my dad has done something my entire life. Whenever we go anywhere, he has like this radar where he finds a place to sit. Uh, He's very active. He's in great shape, but he just finds a place to sit wherever we go. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, there's like one bench in this whole church building and he finds it. So he sits down. And a lot of times my dad, when he sits, he crosses his legs. He crosses his legs uh, something like this. This is his uh, favorite way of sitting. Uh, You know how you turn into your parents? This is the way I sit now all the time. And so he was sitting there, and there was this priest of some kind who came in all his regalia. He comes by, and he has a cane. And he takes that cane, and he whacks my dad on his foot and then his shin. And my dad is a wonderful Christian man, but I thought maybe one of those fist fights that we talked about was going to break out. They're in the midst of it. And the guy who was there with that priest kind of to interpret what was going on, he said, uh, it is very disrespectful for you to show the bottom of your feet. Well, my dad wasn't showing the bottom of his foot, but his foot was off the ground when he crossed his legs. And so my dad uncrossed his legs trying to be respectful so on and so forth. But here's the interesting part. Another member of our group saw that same priest with that same cane later on. And it's interesting, when you go to these places, it's almost like a wishing well for a lot of people. They'll throw money, not just coins, but like big bills, denominations, uh, over the little barriers onto these holy places as so it's going to you know, gain them favor from God or something along those lines. And another par- member of our party saw this same priest, and he was up on one of those barriers with his cane out trying to get some money, and both his feet were in the air. <laughs> so it's disrespectful for us as tourists, but it's not disrespectful to him. Now, I'm not a heart reader. I can't read what's in his heart. But what do his actions say? I'm right, and what I do is right. And it's justified because I'm doing it. But all you other sorry saps can't do it. That's hypocrisy, isn't it? And this kind of attitude among any people is going to breed hypocrisy. This sort of thinking is all about the physical externals too, isn't it? If our religion becomes so obsessed with the outward form to the neglect of the heart, this will be our end too. I want you to consider Matthew chapter 23. If you would, Matthew 23 and 23. This is in the uh, woes that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, like we just talked about. For you pay tithe of mint and anise, and cumin. So these are spices. So you imagine that you're giving tithes as a Jew. You go to your spice rack, and you determine how much of each spice you have, and you're going to give that much spice, 10% of that spice, or the uh, right amount in money, back to the Lord. So you tithe of mint, amets, and cumin, 
and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, why were these other matters weightier? Are they, are they more important? Well, in this sense, they are. They are more important because they deal with the heart. They impact everything else that we do. Justice and mercy and faith should be a part of every action that we take as a Christian. And paying tithes is just one application of that. It is good. It is a good thing to be as precise as you can be with your tithes. Notice Jesus says you need to have justice, mercy, and faith and don't worry about tithing to these Jews. No, that's not what he says. These you ought to have done, tithing correctly, without leaving the others undone. The weightier matters of the law. You're supposed to do both, Jesus says. And if paying your tithes is a good thing, how much more when we neglect the weightier matters For things that God doesn't care about. Building a golden shrine for the tomb Jesus was buried in. When that tomb was found empty. I mean, do you think God cares one whit about the place where Jesus was buried? Think God cares about that at all? The physical location of Jesus' death and burial? I highly doubt it. You know what God cares about? He cares about your heart. And my heart and the hearts of all of those people who are in that building in Jerusalem. He cares about souls. And if we make our religion all about what it looks like on the outside and keeping up appearances, my status in comparison to other people, then we will fall into the same trap. So how do we, how do we overcome these sins? Well, go back, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Notice something that we read. Notice Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Drop down to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. We put on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're not going to have these lusts of the flesh. We're going to avoid these sins that are described here, but let's see if we can be a little more specific than that. Just as one sin can lead to more and worse sins, righteousness, true righteousness, producing these fruit in our lives can lead to more and greater righteousness. So let's, let's work it back. We saw, okay, we saw these sins begin with self. It's hypocrisy. There are physical externals. That's the focus of these sins. Let's walk it back and see if we can overcome them in a similar way. Let's get back to the weightier basics of Christianity. And a great example of that is love. What if? Uh, we talked about the restoration in the Bible class just a little bit and And this idea of restoring what God always intended Christians to be. What if we just tried to be Christians and nothing more and nothing less? And so as Christians, Christians, we're striving to act like Christ. Emphasizing the things that Christ emphasized, like love. 
Specifically, not just love defined as anybody wishes to define it, but loving God without hypocrisy. Notice in this same opening in Galatians chapter 5, go back if you would to verse 13. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 that we read a moment ago. For you, brethren, raise your hand if that applies to you. Are you a Christian? I, I mean, I'm, I'm asking. I'm not telling you to raise your hand. Would you please raise your hand if that applies to you? You brethren, what? Have been called to liberty. Praise God. We are liberated in Jesus Christ. True liberty in service to Him. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. Specifically, they were in liberty in regard to the law of Moses. They didn't have to keep all of those commands of the law of Moses, but this was not an opportunity for them to fulfill the flesh. Instead, they're supposed to serve one another in love. Verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Love your neighbor as Yourself, he says. You have to love God without hypocrisy. Uh, that specific phrase is found in Romans chapter 12. If you want to turn back there, Romans chapter 12. Let's get a specific example of this. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. Romans 12 and verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. There's no play acting here. I'm genuinely, I genuinely love my brother. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Well, that's true love. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. I think a great application of this is found in 1 John chapter 4. We say we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we know that that's really true? Well, one of the manifestations of that is found in 1 John chapter 4. In verse 20, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment that we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I love God. That means I cannot hate my brother. Loving God with hypocrisy is saying that I love him, but not loving my brother like I should. And so specifically, number three, we need to take the opportunity to forgive and reconcile if it's presented to us. How many churches, how many shattered families of God have a latter story? It's not about a ladder, but it's about something that has caused us strife and division. A ladder shrine around which they have built their identities for who they are as an individual Christian or maybe who they are as a group of Christians in a local church. And this offense by a brother or sister in Christ or another group defines them more than their actual relationship with Christ. Um. When I first, I hadn't been preaching very long at all, um, pretty, pretty soon after I graduated college, I had an interview with a, a local church. I guess you call it an interview. We had a conversation about me coming and working with the group there. 
And right off the bat, I mean, it was like right after the pleasantries, you know, who are you, this is who we are, and blah, 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 and those sorts of things. Uh, right after that, they asked me a very specific doctrinal question. It was like, first question. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it wasn't like obscure per se, but it's not what you would expect the first question to be when you talk with a congregation about coming and worshiping with them. Maybe it's a question you ask, but right, first rattle out of the box, I was taken a little aback. And so... So I told them what I believe the scriptures taught about this specific issue. And then I just asked, in sincerity, uh, out of the mouths of babes, because I was ignorant enough to be a babe back then, uh, maybe now. <laughs> I just said, why did you ask that? You know, why was, why was that the first question that you asked? Um, be careful asking a question because you might get an answer. And the man who asked the question said, well, that's the doctrine this church was founded on. And just the words came out before I even realized it. I said, well, you better hope not. You know, you're probably surprised to learn that I, I was not asked to come and work with that group. <laughs> but how sad is that? This church was founded on this one specific doctrine, not on Jesus Christ. There was an older preacher in the area who was kind of a mentor to me, not Wayne, but somebody else. And I just asked him, I knew he'd been around the area a long time. I said, you know, what, what was up with that? And he said, well, that particular congregation split off from another congregation over here, and that was the issue over which they split. And I realized there was a sense in which he was exactly right. He was saying the truth that that church was founded on that doctrine. God forbid! And you notice I didn't say who was right about that particular doctrine. Do you notice that? But God forbid that we take our stand on one particular doctrine to the exclusion of Christ. Now we need to stand for truth. We need to stand for what the Bible teaches on any issue. But it is because we love Christ and we believe He has our best interest at heart. Because our desire is to be right with Him and imitate Him in everything that we do. And it is His church. So He has the right to tell us how it is supposed to operate. But selfish ambition and rivalries and dissension leading to division cannot be what characterizes the people of God. And if we all have hearts, and I know some of you, and I know you have hearts like this. If we all have hearts that are intent on serving God, of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as God defines love, as loving our neighbor, including our brethren, as ourself, that will be apparent, not just to the people in this room, but to all the people out there who know of you and know of this group. May it always be that the people of God are known for such unity. Splits happen. I know that. 
whether in churches or between Christians, and there's usually an innocent party. Maybe someone doesn't repent. Maybe someone is truly in the wrong, and there's no hope for reconciliation so long as we stay that way. But, but can we take the opportunity for reconciliation if it's presented to us? I said before that the immovable ladder in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre hasn't been moved in 200 years, and that's not technically entirely true. In 1981, a person tried to remove the ladder, but was caught by the act by the Israeli police and escaped unidentified. In 1997, as a prank, a tourist took it off the ledge and hid it behind an altar where it remained hidden for several weeks, and they frantically searched for it, and when they found it, what do you think they did? Put it right back out where it was before. In 2009, it was mysteriously moved over from the right window to the left window. Somebody has a sense of humor. And after each of these displacements, the ladder was put back in its proper place. The thing that started as a petty dispute is now as much a part of the church as the rock on which Christ died. Who put the ladder there? Why? Well, who knows? They are long dead and long forgotten along with their reasons. But now we remember the offense by preserving the place of the misplaced ladder. This is not love. And if I may be so bold, this is not true Christianity. How do we take advantage of the opportunity if it presents itself to forgive and to reconcile? To reconcile with my brother or sister in Christ? Love as God defines it. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, love between brethren, we are told, keeps no accounts of wrongs suffered. If I have a chance to move the ladder, I leave it moved. I remember it no more. And this happens. It happens in churches. It happens between churches. It happens between Christians. So how do we do these three things? Well, finally, I would suggest this. We imitate Christ by putting others before ourselves, to, be, to not be drawn into foolishness. How telling that all of this is happening as people fight over standing room to see the rock of Calvary. They stand in line to get a glimpse of the tomb of Christ. You talk about missing the point. What's the point? What is the point? Well, it's found in Philippians chapter 2, this final scripture and. The lesson will be yours for this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, there's one of our words, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. How do we do that? I mean, that's hard, isn't it? That's really hard. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery, something to be held on to at any cost. 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We have a reminder every first day of the week of the attitude we should have of, as Christians, of humility, of self-sacrifice, just as Christ had that attitude. And maybe you're sitting there in the pew this morning and you're saying, listen, you're preaching to me, but you're preaching to the wrong person. You're asking this of me, but what about that person over there, wherever that is, over there, who isn't this way, who has selfish ambition? Well, one person with selfish ambition is, you know what it is? It's one person with selfish ambition. And if everyone else refuses to go down that road, you know what it'll always be? Until that person repents. Just one person with selfish ambition. It is when others start playing that same game that dissensions and divisions occur. So let us all do everything that we can to imitate the selflessness of Christ. And that will never happen. We're going to sing victory in Jesus to encourage you to come to the front. If you need to make your life right with Christ, if you need to put Christ on in baptism. But this lesson, as you know, was primarily directed at those of us who are already Christians. And if you know in your heart of hearts there's something that you need to make right with your brother or sister in Christ, well, I pray that you run into one another going to make it right. And if there's something that we can do, that this local church can do to help you in that, there is nothing that would make these brethren happier than to aid you in putting Christ first by putting your brother first. If we can help you with that even this morning, come now while together we stand and while we sing.